Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who is leading the change? What are the key skills to learn and how to stay up to date in manufacturing and industry 4.0? In episode 54 of the podcast, the topic is industrial pricing strategies. Our guest is Lydia Diniello, CEO and founder of Capital Pricing Consultants, and also a co-host of the WAM podcast, where empowered women interview empowered women. In this conversation, we talk about the pivotal principle of pricing, which has become even more important as industry is reshaping itself due to technology, change, risk, and globalization. What is the role of tech in the pricing space, and why is it not as effective as it should be? What about hardware and software pricing, and how to use the discovery, analysis, and recommendation framework that Lydia Diniello has developed? We discussed industry best practices and touched on a few case studies from NCI to JCPenney and cover the future outlook. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators. Hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim. Presented by Tula, the frontline operations platform. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. Lydia, how are you today? Doing well, Trond, and yourself? Yeah, I'm doing great. I think this is a perfect day to talk about pricing and strategy. I always think it's a perfect day to talk about pricing and strategy since it's what I live for. (laughs) I had a hunch. I had a hunch. Lydia, you are the founder of your own company. You do consulting. You are requested here, there, and everywhere because it's a rare expertise, I think, comparatively. It's not everybody that's a pricing expert. It's such an important feature of many, if not most businesses. It's a very interesting field. You have worked a lot in manufacturing and you are on the Pricing Society Board of Advisors, all of these places that I know very little about. So this is going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to it, Trond. So you also have an MBA and I'm, I'm assuming back when you got the MBA, pricing wasn't just the only topic on the MBA roster. I'm, I'm curious how you then navigated your way to pricing. You're absolutely right. Pricing was not on the radar at all. And it was a bit of a serendipitous story. I graduated with my MBA and I received an opportunity to work for General Motors. It was actually a lottery system. My brother-in-law worked there as an engineer. He received a lottery ticket, quote, and won. And those were the days when they were selling these tickets for $10,000 a person because it was guaranteed lifetime employment, which is unheard of in our culture now, anywhere in the globe. Pricing even right there. There was a ticket to your new (laughs) career. (laughs) Absolutely. And so my brother-in-law said, you know, if you want to work for GM, I'll, I'll put your name in. And I did, which meant I was working second shift. So afternoon term, three to midnight, and I was plugging wiring harnesses for Buick automobiles. And I started my career there and had an opportunity to move off the shop floor in nine months into competitive intelligence. And that was the start of pricing because, Trond, I would have applied for anything that got me off of working second shift. You know, people's careers and the way they shift, even in the past, nowadays, like it goes so fast that it's even crazier. But even before, 
It's just fascinating to me. I always ask this question, how did you kind of end up on the topic that we're talking about? And it's usually fairly serendipitous. Yeah, and I stayed because for me, it was the ability to blend art and science. And that's what I really loved was the intrigue of how did you arrive at a certain price point? And so many times it was purely accidental or not intentional at the very least. And then adding science into it to say, what should those prices be? How could we target a specific kind of of marketplace or a particular kind of customer behavior? And that's really what's intrigued me over all these years. That's fascinating. And we'll dive deep into this because I think the only reason right now that some young people are excited about pricing, I think, is that they tie it up in with analytics and AI and like, you know, quantitative sort of strategies and like looking into deep data and figuring out, you know, and and then, of course, famously, you know, retailers and Amazon and stuff, you know, we are becoming more and more aware that we're faced with, you know, machines versus us and uh, these machines are outpricing us. But even before that, there was you. So I'm curious, <laughs> you know, what goes through a pricing mind and, and especially in industry, obviously, industrial pricing strategies. Maybe you could lay out the field a little bit for us. So what is pricing? When was it actually established as even as a field? Because like you said, even though it's so important to a business, I mean, without a, the right price, you're not going to get clients. And with a better price, you might get more, more. more revenue or more clients and less revenue. And, and all of these choices you, you could make at any given moment and they will impact your business. Why don't you lay it out for us as a field? Where do you dig to get better either at the art or the science of pricing? So to answer your first question, Tron, which I've not been asked that before, so it's really interesting that you're taking this approach. I would say the field is 30 to 35 years old in terms of, of having been established. And I think the way it was established really was the Professional Pricing Society kind of came into being to address that need. The gentleman that founded it, Eric Mitchell, had worked for, I believe it was the Ford Motor Company, and said, you know, there's a real need here. People are just essentially throwing up numbers to see what sticks. There was no AI back then. Analytics was Excel spreadsheets at best in most cases. So the depth and the breadth of what we now consider to be analytics, I don't think really existed. And so to me, establishing that organization and raising the issue in the marketplace to say, hey, wait a minute, why are we as a business not looking at all of the dimensions of how we're going to market? One of the critical ones being, and at what price does the customer actually buy at? And what are the trade-offs like you mentioned? Do you want more revenue and less customers? Do you want just more customers? Do you want profitability? So I think that's really when the industry itself, if you will, or the, or the segment of pricing was created, the discipline of pricing. And I think now it has morphed and has graduated or become more sophisticated to be very much in tune with AI and analytics, as you mentioned. And I think there's a third dimension now, Trond, especially, which is supply chain. And I believe the companies that are going to be the most successful in business are those that are tying supply chain and pricing together. I listened to a Barron's podcast, and they were talking with the CEO of Lowe's. And he specifically said, and I think his name is, is Marvin Ellison, that is the first time I have heard a Fortune 500 CEO specifically call out pricing. And I'm going to paraphrase, but his comment was essentially he didn't realize how much power and what they could drive to the bottom line by tying supply chain and pricing together. 
Can you tell me more about that? Because it's not immediately obvious to me what that means. I could kind of take a guess. And and certainly, you know, we can talk about the building sector and stuff because they are really, Absolutely. the prices have been immediately passed on to all of us and, and to builders, but, you know, fairly immediately straight on to people trying to do additions on their houses. But talk about what is the Lowe's CEO talking about here specifically? So the way I interpreted his remarks, because he he did not extrapolate in great detail, but the way I interpreted what was being said is when you look at how you are procuring a good, what does it cost you to bring that good into your organization? That's your raw cost. How many times do you handle it? What's involved relative to then passing it on? Are you adding value to it? Are you just purely taking the widget and passing that widget directly onto your customer? So knowing that obviously the old adage of what's your cost side. Okay. That's old hat, if you will. Everyone's used to talking about that part of supply chain. Where I think this is unique is when you talk about at what price point you go to market. So often those two things are never considered until the end of the quarter when we true up all of the financial statements and we say, wait a minute. Oh, gee, the cost went way up. Now we're chasing a price increase to try to make up that cost increase. Where To your point, when you talk about the buildings industry, I think by their nature, they were already very closely aligning supply chain along with pricing because they had to relative to their raw material cost basically is their business, if you will. And so I think other businesses that have never seen the the need to so closely connect those two points are now beginning to understand that if I know what my total cost is right away as part of any business decision, and and it's not forecasted and it's not some huge effort to get to that cost, because that's the other thing I find, Trond, is if you ask a company, what is your cost? I usually get glazed looks around the table and they say, well, which one did you want? Well, the cost is what I want. And then we get into, well, is it uh, just-in-time cost and is it a variable cost and is it fixed? Is it average? Is it right down the line, right? So I think when you tie supply chain and pricing together, you have those conversations in tandem rather than separate. And then your bottom line and your opportunity to take those cost increases and make sure your profitability is as strong as possible is much improved. So let me share a, a, a kind of a dumb example of this. But when I bought my house and built the additions needed or you know, renovated my house, I was so scared of delays. And I was able to negotiate with our design builder a very unusual, now that I understand it, very unusual contract, whereby I actually had on paper that if he was delayed, he would pay me uh, and uh, he would pay the hotel for my family. And if he accelerated or was on time, he would get a bonus. And nowadays, like that contract would be crazy because not only, you know, are, are there pricing increases associated perhaps even with like accelerated supply chains, but I've heard that even some basic things like a washer could be backed up for months. But, you know, as a consumer or even more as a business builder, you know, these are the costs. Like if you are running into delays, this could mean you have to postpone, you know, moving into a building or or some very important company event, and certainly you'll have extra costs. So it is so tied together, yet in many, many businesses, they were never tied together or people refused to see them as connected. Mm-hmm. And I love that example, Todd. I think that's a fantastic negotiation technique. So I have to ask, was your builder on time? or ahead Yeah, of I was going to say, what do you think happened? I think he was ahead of schedule because he wanted his bonus. 
He did it. Like, I think a couple of days ahead, they were certainly, you know, right on time, you know, military background, great design builder, you know, uh, and anyway, it was fantastic. Maybe I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. (laughs) Oh, please do. I think that's great. And, you know, something else to share along those same lines, the Wall Street Journal, I think just a couple of days ago, talked about the fact that there was concern over stock stability because of Wall Street's concern that companies are not getting out in front of all of these cost increases, that there's too large of a lag between their actual cost increases and when they're executing against them and how much they're actually capturing in terms of those increases. And that's the single thing I preach really to every client I talk to, because there's a natural reticence for some reason in so many industries in manufacturing to not want to rock the boat or upset the customer or pass on this cost increase. And the more reticent the manufacturer is, the more painful it is later in the process, not only for the manufacturer because they're losing money, but also for the client or the customer because they can't take a 20% increase when the manufacturer finally realizes they're underwater, they're negative in profit. That's so interesting. We'll we'll get to your framework in a second, but before that, because that's really, really interesting to have a, a good handle on it, I think probably on, on either side of, of the pricing, even if you're sort of subjected to prices, the transparency aspects are important. But let's just uh, hit on a couple of news stories here or other sort of more famous cases that are out there that, that will make people relate a little bit to this question. So you have worked with a bunch of companies that are known, and we can't talk about all of them, but some of them we can talk about. But then in the news just right now is this very interesting pricing and anti- antitrust question around the airlines. What's that about, Lydia? And, and, and what do you make of it? The Biden administration is kind of asserting itself post-Trump. What, what are they up to? So it was in Barron's this morning, and I was really surprised to see this, that American Airlines and JetBlue, are trying to partner together for basically the Northeast section of the United States to take over routes that were predominantly run by Delta and United. And the Biden administration has stepped in and said, can't do that. This is an antitrust issue. There's basically four major air carriers in the United States. And as a result, if you try to partner, you're going to dramatically shrink the market down. They said 80% of the market was captured by those four airlines. What I make of this, Tron, is it's great posturing and it's um, a nice stance. However, I don't think there's any real teeth to this because as I read through it, it specifically said that one of the criteria is that American Airlines and JetBlue agreed that they wouldn't talk about the fares, nor would they talk about prices. Well, I mean, come on. Anybody that's ever partnered in anything, we all know without a shadow of a doubt, right? These prices are going back and forth across the table, and they may not be sent by email files that are traceable, but it's very clear. There's going to be a golf game and and numbers are going to get exchanged. There's going to be a new language developed to not talk about prices, but still hint at prices. Absolutely. So I think it's a farce. But on the other side, I think it's interesting that they're actually putting them through the legal hoops, if you will, of actually defending their case and why this isn't antitrust and what they're going to do about it. And so I wonder if the fares will be watched closely. So now as a consumer, I'm anxious to see what does this do to JetBlue's traditionally lower cost fares 
And what does it do to Americans, which certainly have not generally been perceived as being discounted? So stay tuned on that one. But I do think it's really interesting that it's hitting the news. And finally, we're talking about pricing in the news. And it's interesting timing about not being able to talk about pricing in an environment which I would think for for most people, pricing is as important as ever. Tell me about strategic pricing anyway in some of some of these other cases. I mean, is there anything else that matters at the end of the day in a in a business? I mean, where would you start when you're at that level, you know, at the, at the massive business? I mean, is there any other issue that's more important than pricing? I, I can almost not think of one. So I touch anything, Tron, that has to do with price to make sure that I'm not missing something significant relative to are there issues in manufacturing? There's specific bottlenecks about ability to serve a customer. For example, NCI, the buildings manufacturing company that I dealt with, one of their challenges was where they had multiple locations available to serve customers and how those were being managed. And so it was important to know about that information as we talked about price, because it indirectly affected price from the standpoint of, if I've got to ship these building materials from a further location, we now have incurred more shipping costs. Can we pass that on to the customer, yes or no? How do we pass that on? And that was prior to the craziness in the construction industry now where a two by four went from being $2.48 to quite literally being $8.42. So the numbers have flipped, but they're by order of magnitude of four. So anybody not passing along that cost increase is dead in the water relative to profitability. And that goes directly back to your question about, is there anything more important than strategy? In my opinion, no, because if you're not talking strategy from the CEO through the director, down through the pricing person who's actually approving discounts. If everybody's believing a different strategy and executing differently, which I find, whether it's a Fortune 500 trend or a startup, I never find a company where everyone believes the same thing. It doesn't happen. And well, so I that, always start that's there. That's funny. You, you, you mentioned startups. I want to talk about those specifically because clearly the issues are somewhat different. But just right before that, JCPenney, I don't know if you said you had worked with them, but they certainly they're always in news and, and you know bankruptcy and all. There are some issues there, perhaps, regarding pricing. What, what, what was your take on that case when it came to how they have handled pricing? So I believe there was a tremendous disconnect relative to strategy, as well as voice of customer. I think that was a twofold issue. From a strategic standpoint, going in to change a company whose history has always been about a discount persona to the marketplace and suddenly moving to this everyday price that no consumer wants at any part of, the experience for the, the customer was that idea of would they get 30% off on that scratch off or would it be 10? It was a bit of a lottery. But that was part of what drove the excitement or the interest in going to shop at Penny's because you knew you were getting a discount. That was guaranteed. You just didn't know the degree to which you were getting that discount. And when executive management chose to move away from a core strategy, which had defined the company throughout its history, I thought that was A, a tremendous mistake. And then B, to stop the discounting and move to the polar opposite clearly did not pay off for them at all. Seems to be a lot of psychology going on. It. I mean, you said the art and science. Let's go to that. I don't know if you consider psychology, art or science. Some people call it both, right? I mean, certainly yes. psychology sure. taps into 
both, but studying psychology can be a scientific endeavor. But I mean, I'm joking a little bit here, but the psychology of the consumer is at play here, right? Without a shadow of a doubt, Tron. And understanding that because it's so different for each market and it can be different within the same industry. If we look at retail, look at Amazon, there is not a discount mindset there, but there is a mindset of convenience, availability, subscription, willingness to pay. I'm a prime member, so I'm going to check Amazon first that ships for free and shows up at my door. It's convenient. I don't have to pay shipping. So those are my psychological expectations whenever I get onto Amazon. Yeah. Can you talk about B2B a little? Because we're a lot concerned with the industrial sector and industrial tech in particular, whether you have smart young startups selling to bigger manufacturers or it is vice versa. How does pricing work in, in the B2B setting? So I think the single biggest mistake that all B2Bs make is that they always want to just do cost plus pricing or margin derived. So either they're saying my cost is X and I'm going to add a 20% margin and therefore my price is 1.2 essentially, or they will say, I need a margin of 30% minimum. Therefore, everything is set at 30%. And they don't look at what their business customer actually needs. What are they actually delivering to that business customer? They're not looking at the value proposition which is also a blend of art and science for Matron and something that I always define with my clients because what a company believes they're delivering to their customer is very often not at all what they're delivering. So a manufacturer that I worked with was in custom plastic bags and they believed what they were offering the customer was in fact a customized plastic bag. No. That was not it? Not from my perspective, no. What they were offering was a In some cases, it was a specific sales mechanism. So it was a vision to the customer. So it was about packaging. It was about presentation. It was about could it stand up and sit upright on a shelf so that a customer saw it directly as in a a food packaging. If it was gold earrings, they were offering the jeweler the opportunity to keep the product on the shelf without tarnishing because they put anti-tarnish chemicals into the bag itself. So it's very much about addressing what that specific product is doing for your business customer and not just the thing you think you're selling. Fantastic. So if you are a startup then, and your perception is that you don't control pricing because you're newer in the marketplace, how should you go about thinking about perceived value because you're still establishing yourself? And so I think the single most important thing, Trond, is is being open to learning from it and not being set and walking in and saying pricing has to be X, but rather going in and having conversations with the people you're selling to and saying, what does this do for you? What could I do better or differently? And listen, because as they are telling you, for example, with the jeweler who said, you know, I can't just lay these on my shelf because they tarnish. Okay, value add. We can put something in to keep it from tarnishing. That is worth something. When you're a startup, you're doing everything and anything you can to land business. So what are the unique things you're doing for any one of your customers to land that business? Are you agreeing to specific delivery requirements? Are you offering to drive it yourself to a special location? Are you packaging it in some way to accommodate an issue they're having? Are you holding inventory? Are you guaranteeing inventory? especially right now, 
where supply chain is so impacted globally. I think anything that a startup can do to give reassurances that they will protect their customer's business has very, very high value. And so they want to make sure. And then the second step is once they identify it, take price for it. Don't say, hey, Trond, I've brought this to your house and I'm holding inventory for you. And I've added every bell and whistle possible. Please stay my customer. Wrong approach. Say, for this service, for this value, your price is going up 15%. Wow. Can we talk specifics about one thing that you know certainly is a big focus for us here on the podcast, which is sort of this the two cultures in manufacturing when it comes to technology. So the operational technology culture, which Mm -hmm. you could very briefly sort of characterize by the, I guess, the traditional way to approach technology in a business, right? And there were certain, for example, on the software side, certain types of business models associated with that, typically, you know, a big initial cost and then a high service cost. And certainly a high implementation cost followed by a service cost. And then these newer models obviously are more either just explore for free and have some fun. And then we'll slap on a monthly low subscription SaaS price. And then, you know, if you, for some reason, are interested in 100 units, now we're talking more money. But you can try it all for free and we'll come there and help you and and all that stuff. How does pricing culture play into this? And what do you think is shaking out there when it comes to purchasing technology for a manufacturer today and and, and going forward? So I think to your point, Tron, the whole basis of software technology has changed relative to pricing. And so what used to be exactly, as you said, a very high investment for implementation, and it was on-premise, and then you still paid a maintenance fee for the year, added up to dramatic bills on an annual basis. I would say in the last five years, most especially, and from a speed perspective, the last two, where I've seen most everything move to subscription model. When you were talking about try it for a short period, what I see happening now is is more try a section of something, specifically analytics, for example, but it, it is gated very tightly. And so you only can play, if you will, with a very defined part of the software. And generally what I'm seeing is it's just analytics to kind of get you hooked and interested. And then, of course, with the analytics, what I find is most clients start to learn what they really aren't seeing. And so it's a natural hook for the software companies because then they say, well, we can show you what it would be like to control your deal. So you know how much you're actually selling to this specific vendor As a side note of that, Tron, one of the things I I kind of find entertaining is how many times I see companies horrified when they realize the degree to which they've discounted their absolute worst customers. And that comes out in in the (laughs) analytics. And I always ask for those reports because I know there's going to be fun in those. So they Why learn. do people do that? And by the way, I love your term, the absolute worst customers. I thought one couldn't speak of customers that way, but I, you have a pretty frank demeanor about you. Yeah. I actually also recommend that clients fire customers, which is always an interesting conversation as well. But um, ask the question again. I apologize. Well, I was just curious. Well, you know, firing customers, the, the, this whole idea of being very frank about what is a good and a bad customer, you know, from your perspective, basically they're not amenable to your pricing strategy, essentially, and you're forced to do discounts, you said, or or they, for some reason, receive all these discounts left and right, maybe because there's no coordination of discounts or, or no understanding of why there would be a deserved discount. 
And in addition, Tron, exactly what you said, and they make a lot of noise. They are a very high pain point. So I worked with that plastics company. One of their distributors was notorious for getting discounts because he was just mean. He was absolutely nasty. And so we finally called him on it with the CEO. He didn't know the CEO was on the phone with me at the time while he was being nasty. And the CEO said, hey, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore, Phil. Cut it out. And after that, we built a level of respect and he started taking the price increases. But it's everything from histrionics, right? The Academy Award of carrying on to the threat of losing business, which we all always worry about. And depending on where we're at in the hierarchy in an organization, if you own sales, you don't want to be on record for why you let these sales go unless you've got the organizational support behind you. So it's, as you said, discounts that are not concatenated or awareness around the combination of the discounts. It can be a lot of things like special services. This week, you asked me for special delivery terms. In a month, you know, it's, hey, Lydia, can you just do this for me once? Watch out. I warn everyone in manufacturing, watch out for the one-time onlys. They're never one-time. One time becomes the next month I need the favor and the third time. And you're never collecting money for what you're providing. So Lydia, when companies realize that they have no handle on this and they want to bring in the troops, you bring in your DAR framework. What's the DAR framework? So it's a trademarked methodology that I utilize, which is discovery, assessment, and recommendations. And you know what they say about um, a prophet is someone from another town, right? We can all say the same thing in our own companies or parts of it. And I've seen companies who start a process of analysis and maybe they make some cursory recommendations, but they don't have the ability to tie it into corporate strategy. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I always start with the CEO and with the corporate strategy. What are the top two or three things that the CEO wants and expects from a strategic corporate standpoint? How does that carry them through all the way down to customer service who's entering the keystrokes to make that sale happen? How is that translated out in the field? Where do the discounts happen? So I look at everything around strategy, business process, around software, and how the software does or doesn't support what they're doing. So often I see companies who their strategy is pretty decent, their business processes could use some showing up, but they're not bad. And the software that they're forced to work around is so inefficient, it causes problems and and actually is causing them to lose profitability. And so as I go through this discovery assessment and then make recommendations, it really provides an executive dossier on here's everything touching price, here's the impact to the business, and here's the places that changes could be made, whether it is governance of pricing, whether it's business policy, whether it is along business process, To give a specific, I had one client, large Fortune 500, who actually was discounting a quote three times before it went out the door and no one knew it was happening. But I walk processes, Tron. That's something I actually learned from General Motors on second shift. Walk around the shop floor. People don't intentionally lie to you. They believe in their head what they've told you. But when you sit next to someone and they said, well, I discounted it. Okay. And then I pass it to John and he discounts it again. How come? 
Why? Well, because we're afraid we've made a mistake. So we each check each other's work, but then we each have to give a third discount. And that was great fun because the chief operating officer put down everything she was working on. And she looked at me and she said, could you say that again, please? That's when it's really fun because you can see the difference the business is going to make as a result of this. Wow. Lydia, my last question for you is we've been dancing around tech in the pricing space and why you know tech pricing isn't as, as efficient always as it could be. And of course, there are some cultural issues there. But the larger issue, it seems, is that tech is sometimes sold as, you know, it's a solution to a problem. Yeah. But of course, tech without consideration for a host of other issues, whether it is in, you know, on this cyber side, on security side, which is now becoming more obvious, or it has to do with more like business policies and even governance issues. It, it doesn't solve everything. But how do you take that into account when you are selling a product without, I guess, overselling? And also just, you know, in all fairness, tech is just part of the solution. How, how does that come into play for you? So for me, it's always about starting with business process first and making sure that we have a very strong baseline to work from before we talk technology. So always with every client, it's the DAR first. And once we have the output of that to know what opportunities we have, what risks are there before we talk about what software application makes sense. Does the one they have fit what they really need to do? Because otherwise, we're only automating that which is not efficient and not functional. You could lose money faster, Tron, doing it that way. So I'm a huge proponent of technology. It does amazing things. We just have to make sure we're clear on our base first with strategy, with process, with governance, with all of the hard heavy lifting. And then when you put it into technology, it's amazing what you can turn around. It's amazing, but I guess it also speaks to the value prop of a technology that's flexible because if you do yes. get stuck in these massive contracts god forbid yes it could be efficient but you have to change your organization takes three years yes. to implement and if you have to implement it in a smaller factory that you bought in some other country now you're stuck because your approach doesn't scale to these smaller sites so there's a lot going on here we're not going to be covering all of right. it but i'm just kind of curious as a, as a sort of last comment if there's anything else we haven't talked about you know, forward-looking on pricing strategy, what are some of the things people should keep in their head? And obviously, at some point, they need to talk to some experts. But what are some things, you know, high-level that people should be left with here? So high-level, start with your strategy. Is it really defined or is it folklore that everyone believes is true, but no one has proven is true and no one has really signed off on and at all levels? Secondly, when you're looking at technology, make sure it's extensible, make sure it's scalable, make sure it's flexible to your point. Because if you buy something that only fits the corporate need, when you go to scale, it falls apart. And so you need something that can be changed in weeks, not in months. And I think that's critically important. And don't expect that your technology is going to be as inexpensive as it appears at first glance. Because while subscriptions have come down, implementation is still implementation. And the things we don't really know till we dig into it. This is just kind of a shared warning of best practices. You're going to spend more than you think you are. So be prepared for that. Lydia, I'm always so impressed when I talk to people that have made these incredibly smart choices. For example, pricing seems to me like it's recession proof. You're like, you're, you're equally <laughs> popular in boom and bust cycles. That is a very intelligent move. I congratulate <laughs> you even on that move. Uh, Thank you very, very much. Very exciting to talk to you about these things. And pricing can be fun. 
It really can be. And Etrande, I thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. I wish every company would take the time to look at this because it makes such a difference to their bottom line. And it's really small tweaks. It's not turning the business upside down, but it's being aware of making small changes that makes a huge difference to the bottom line. Small changes. That's what we're going to do. Thanks so much, Lydia. My pleasure, Tron. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. You have just listened to episode 54 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trondarne Unheim. The topic was industrial pricing strategies, and our guest was Lydia DiLiello, CEO and founder of Capital Pricing Consultants. In this conversation, we talked about how pricing is an important factor considering the changing nature of industry. My takeaway is that I will admit to having often underestimated the strategic role of pricing in determining industrial developments, new entrants, exciting business models, and testing and or scaling products. I am not surprised that there are pricing consultants because the area is complex and you need both data and experience to play it right. The future of pricing is undoubtedly influenced by ever-evolving analytics about the purchase habits of people and business, but it is also shaped by the X factors of the emerging future. At the end of the day, pricing is a high-priority leadership topic, but also one that will be shaped by specialists. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 41, Scaling Software Movements, episode 50, The Last Mile of Productivity, or episode 49, Lean Manufacturing in the USA. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us because we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tula, a connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, the machines, devices, and all the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.com. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where the industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented. Industrial conversations that matter.